This morning, we come to a most beloved section of Scripture, John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. In this story, an adulterous woman is brought to Jesus by the religious leaders of his day, and the religious leaders put this woman before Jesus and offer him a challenge. Chapter 8, verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Lest we think these religious leaders were seeking justice, the story tells us, verse 6, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him, that is, against Jesus. These men had no interest for the woman, neither for the law. These men were seeking to use the woman and to use the law, well, to get rid of Jesus. That was their intent. The response that Jesus gives is one of the most memorable responses that he gives in really all of Scripture. Verse 7 in the ESV, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Maybe you've heard it. This statement is memorable because it's a contradiction in terms. Remember, the topic at hand is justice. That's the subject. The contradiction in terms, the paradox or the puzzle of the statement is this. Jesus proposes that justice must be meted out by sinless judges. Well, that's absurd. That nullifies justice. If the standard for administrating justice is sinlessness, well, then justice itself would be rendered null and void. And so we see the outcome of the standard for justice that Jesus sets in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. By the standard Jesus set, the judges have been invalidated. As the story is told, the religious leaders recognize their misuse of the law, and they walk away. They leave. Now, as the story closes, the woman is there left alone with Jesus, and he offers her more memorable words. Verse 11, neither do I condemn you, go And from now on, sin no more. Or more succinctly, in the King James Version, we're familiar with the phrase, go and sin no more, is what he says to her. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, so it doesn't matter whether or not you commit adultery. That's not what Jesus says. What Jesus does is he reestablishes righteousness in her life. The law of Moses said, be righteous and don't get stoned. The law of Jesus says, be righteous because you've been rescued by God. Therefore, obedience grows out of the rich soil of God's mercy. Not from the fear 
of stones. The story about the woman caught in adultery is compelling. As I've said, it's beloved. It is a beloved story. Yet, if you're looking at your Bible, if you have an ESV Bible before you, you have one of our blue Bibles in the pew, you probably notice that the story is set off in brackets. Or, if you have a certain Bible, a certain translation, it's found actually in a footnote. It's footnoted. Some translations have that. In the ESV, again, you have these brackets that are around this text. And there's some brackets, there's a paragraph, there's a sentence right before the text, and it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Right there in the text. And so this leaves us, of course, with a couple options as it relates to how to address this text of Scripture. Well, I suppose we could ignore the problem. We could just teach the text like any other passage in the Bible. Certainly do that on a lot of people do that. I suppose I could tell you that these things are best handled in ivory towers, and for us living in the real world, it doesn't really matter much, and it seems like Scripture, so let's just proceed. We might even go so far as one man who, who said, the one who is led and taught by the Spirit of God need not waste valuable time examining ancient manuscripts for the purpose of discovering whether or not this portion of the Bible is really a part of God's own word. I respect that man a lot. (laughs) That's quite a sentence, though. I sense that that author feels there's a danger in addressing the issue. That it might, addressing this issue might leave people, might leave lay people, might leave us doubting that the Bible we hold in our hands is the word of God. Now, the other danger is that I tell you that your favorite story in Scripture is, well, not in Scripture, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. Spurgeon spoke to pastors about the double problem. He says, quote, it is unwise to be making every old lady distrust the only Bible she can get at, or what is more likely, mistrust you for falling out with her cherished treasure. In other words, I have the double challenge this morning of having you leaving today, trusting your Bible, and, well, trusting me. In my estimation, it would be most damaging to ignore the issue. In fact, it's my opinion that to ignore the issue is to really abandon my pastoral duty. I probably don't have to tell you this, but my, that I'm not an expert in what they call textual criticism. That's not my discipline, my primary discipline. That being said, as your pastor, it's my duty, it's my job to determine, to work hard to determine the truth of a matter and to work within my abilities to explain that matter. I get paid to do that every week, and it's a blessing. And so this week is no different, and I aim every week to do just that to determine the truth of a matter, and to proceed within my abilities. Michael Milton wrote, If a sparrow flies into a sanctuary on a Sunday morning, at around the second point of the sermon, the preacher who continues his message without addressing the obvious flutter of little wings will not enjoy a congregation who hears his third point. 
Timothy Miller wrote, when a pastor avoids discussing an issue that the printed text highlights, they're at risk of losing their audience. Perhaps they simply lose their attention, but just as likely they will lose the congregant's confidence. It's neither my desire to lose your attention, nor is it my desire that you lose confidence. Therefore, it's my goal to help you understand enough about text criticism and enough about this passage in general to help you understand, to help you, excuse me, to help you make sense of the issues related to the story of this woman caught in the darkness. Now, to be clear, when we talk about text criticism, I've already used that phrase, that title, a couple times. When we talk about text criticism, we're not talking about those who are critical, necessarily, of the text. As a discipline, that's not what text criticism means. It simply uh, is a title given to the study of the text. And so there are text-critical scholars who believe in the inerrant inspiration, in inerrancy and inspiration. And there are text-critical scholars who don't. There are men like Dan Wallace who believe in inerrancy and are text-critical scholars. And there are men like, a man we'll talk about, Bart Ehrman, who is a text-critical scholar who doesn't believe in inerrancy and inspiration. So text criticism doesn't mean necessarily a critical view, a negative view of the Scriptures. So what do the scholars say? What do the scholars say about this passage that I've briefly summarized here? Well, most reputable New Testament scholars do not think that this story is a part of the Gospel of John. That is, when it was first written in its original writing or its original manuscripts, original autographs but that it was added centuries later. For example, Don Carson writes, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, he says. The modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, as the NIV does, or to relegate it to a footnote, as the RSV does, or to put it in brackets like the ESV translation does. Bruce Metzger, probably the leading New Testament scholar until his death, he writes, the evidence for the non-Johannan, non-John origin of the pericope or the paragraph, the section of the adulteress is, he says, overwhelming. Leon Morris, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Andreas Kustenberger this represents overwhelming evidence that the section is non-Johannine. It's not a part of John's original gospel, he says. Now, why do these scholars say that it wasn't in the original? Why do they say that? Well, in addressing text-critical issues or text criticism, there are two lines of evidence, internal evidence and external evidence. External evidence speaks to the manuscript evidence. What do the manuscripts actually say? Internal evidence speaks to the actual text itself and what evidences in the text either speak to the validity or the invalid, that the text might be invalid or not in the original. Let's start with the external manuscript evidence. So, here's the major reason, reason why scholars reject the story. Well, the story is missing from all Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century, which means that for 400 years, there's no manuscript evidence for this account, the woman caught in adultery. 
When the, score, when the story does begin to show up in the manuscripts, there are annotations that indicate there are questions about the story's authenticity. So again, around 400, it begins to show up, but the scribes, those who are making the copies, there's notes there that, says, that say, hmm, we don't know if this is for real, if this is uh, actually in the original. Another point, none of the church fathers, these are men like Clement and Ignatius, and Justin Martyr, Chrysostom, etc., none of them comment on this passage. Even those who deal with the text of John verse by verse. So early commentaries of this book, those men who, who wrote commentaries on this and went verse by verse through it, nobody mentions the text until the 10th century. What about the internal evidence? Well, you should know that when the story does begin to show up in the manuscripts, it's placed in different places. While the majority of those manuscripts have it here after John 7.52, well, some locate it after 7.36, some have it after 7.44, some have it at the very back end of the Gospel of John in chapter 21, verse 25, and there's even manuscripts of Luke that have it in the Gospel of Luke after Luke 21.38. James White writes, Such moving about by a body of text is plain evidence of its later origin and the attempt on the part of scribes to find a place where it fits. Carson again, The diversity of placement confirms the inauthenticity of the verses. Something else? The vocabulary and style of the story is unlike the rest of John's gospel. One of the things that text critics uh, critic, critic, text critics do is they actually look at all the words that a certain author will favor. So remember, John and Matthew and Paul and Peter, they were all individual men, and they have their own style of writing. They favor certain words. So what words does Paul favor, and what words does John favor? And so they will actually analyze the text for those kinds of phrases and verb forms and conjunctions that a certain author will favor. Well, of course, this is well above our pay grade, but in analyzing this section, these scholars determine that the internal evidence does not support that John wrote this passage. So there's a number of problems internally in the original language and the way that it's put together that don't follow patterns that would typically be John's patterns to follow. One simple example just to show you how this might work, is that in verse 5, he says, scribes and the Pharisees. Well, this is the only time in the Gospel of John that he uses that combination, scribes and the Pharisees. It doesn't prove the point. It's just one little mark, again, of that internal kind of evidence. It's the only place that he uses that combination where Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually use that a lot. But John actually never says scribes and Pharisees. So that'd be an evidence of kind of an internal evidence an uh, example, excuse me, of an internal evidence that they would argue, use to argue that somebody else might have wrote this. So then, where does the internal and external evidence leave us? Well, because the field of text criticism is very technical, requiring an expertise in ancient languages and the ability to read ancient manuscripts, we're going to have to put some trust in others on this one. As I've said, it's my task to work hard to determine the truth of a matter and to proceed within my abilities. As it is, well, I think these scholars are right. I don't believe this story was part of the original text of John's gospel. It wasn't in the original autographs, as they say. 
as I see it. Furthermore, if God wanted to preserve this text, well, he would have preserved it like he preserved the rest of the text of John, but he didn't in his wisdom. That being said, the story was likely a piece of early oral tradition that circulated in the church and at some point was written down. But whether or not the story is true, there's no way for us to know. D.A. Carson, the scholar I quoted, who quoted him a couple times, who believed it wasn't a part of the original gospel, he says this, On the other hand, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Even in its written form, even if, excuse me, in its written form, it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. And so I suppose Carson wants to have his cake and to eat it too. This is actually where a lot of scholars and commentators and pastors who teach this message land when you kind of look at the commentary landscape. It's not a part of the original gospel, but it likely happened, and so let's just teach it anyway. It's usually the path forward that men choose. Now, I, I, want, I want to return to the conversation about manuscript evidence. What about the manuscript evidence for uh, the New Testament, the New Testament in general? I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. As I said in my introduction, I don't want anyone to doubt the authenticity of their Bible. So whenever we talk about manuscripts or whenever someone sees something like this, if anyone sees something like this, there's a temptation to maybe doubt or have skepticism about their Bible. So I don't want anyone to leave doubting the authenticity of their Bibles. Furthermore, before you judge me a fool for teaching this kind of message on a Sunday morning— which you might think that's true. Thinking that this issue is irrelevant for the common man, and think, excuse me, that it is irrelevant for the common man, if you were to go to Barnes & Noble, you'll find one New Times bestseller on the topic of text criticism. And that one bestseller is written by a man who doesn't believe in the veracity of the Word of God, a man named Bart Ehrman. And so, I believe it's a topic worth, worth taking up. He has sold over 100,000 copies of the book, Misquoting Jesus. Maybe you've heard of it. Followed it up with another book, Jesus Interrupted, and another one, Forged, in 2011. Kind of a trilogy, if you will, and he's still writing, of books that address manuscript evidence, and if reading them, leave you with skepticism and doubt about your New Testament. His goal is to make us skeptics. His, his, his goal is to give us reasons to not believe. Now, although responding to Bart Ehrman's work is not my primary goal this morning, the popularity of his books does give us good reason to address these issues when they come up. And again, they don't come up all the time. This is probably the one time in the Gospel of John that will address this issue. It might be the only time in my ministry that I address this issue on a Sunday morning unless I teach the end of the Gospel of Mark, and which would be the only other place that it would come up primarily to, the, to such a degree. So, helping you understand a couple important things about the science of textual criticism through our passage in John here might give you some line of defense against an airman apostle. So what do I need to know about text criticism? Well, you know that the New Testament was written in Greek. I think you know that. The first complete New, Te New Testament came off the printing press, was published by a man named Erasmus in 1516. The first complete New Testament didn't arrive 
until 1516. That is off the printing press. This means that prior to that date, the New Testament was passed down through handwritten copies. So for 1,500 years, the New Testament came to its listeners, its hearers, on handwritten copies. It's a long time. This is the preservation method desired by our Lord. The Lord also desired that none of the original manuscripts exist to this day. So the original Gospel of John the original, Paul's original writings, none of those very first writings, the one penned by John, does not exist. It is not around, nor are any of the original manuscripts from the New Testament. As John Piper says, to the reason why that might be, he says, since we would probably turn it into an idol and charge money for people to come worship, we assume. We don't know the reason why the Lord didn't preserve those first copies, but he didn't. Now, while God may not have preserved the first copy of the New Testament, well, he did preserve a vast amount of copies, a vast amount of uh, manuscripts. In fact, the vast amount of copies compared to other works is, well, astounding. Consider the following. There are 10 existing copies of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. This is originally written between 58 and 50 BC, so that's 50 years before Jesus came. There are 10 existing, existing copies of that, and those copies are dated in the 10th century. So for 900 years, we have no idea what they actually, what the truth was. They don't show up until the 10th century. There are 20 copies of Livy's Roman history written around the time of Jesus. Only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus's histories and the annals. This was originally written around 100 A.D., and the two manuscripts we have for that didn't show up until the 9th and 11th century. So for a thousand years, we don't have any evidence of that document. There are only eight manuscripts of a history of Thucydides. I think I got that right. Got to work on my Greek pronunciations. Thucydides. There are only eight manuscripts of his history, and he lived in the 5th century B.C., now, let's compare this with the number of manuscripts from the New Testament. Keep in mind, these include partial and full manuscripts. The Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, which is the most authoritative collection of such data, states the following. There are 322 uncial texts. Now, the uncial texts are those texts that have capital letters. You've probably been around long enough to see manuscripts where all the Greek letters are in capitals. Well, those are uncial texts. There's 322 of those manuscripts. There are 2,907 minuscule texts. You can probably put together what that means. There are 2,445 lectionary portions. These are manuscripts that were used primary, primarily for public worship. They were used for the church. And there are 127 papyri. These are the earliest manuscripts written on a material made from the papyrus plant. This gives us a total of 5,801 manuscripts. So let's just round it off and say there's 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament, copies of the New Testament. Now each of those manuscripts is a handwritten copy of the New Testament or a part of the New Testament, and each is preserved in a library that you can go look at. There's a wonderful preservation technology associated with all of these manuscripts. Now, in comparing the manuscript evidence to other ancient documents, well, there's absolutely no comparison. There's a, way more New Testament evidence uh, 
there's way more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than there are other documents. Now, if you want to see this for yourself or you want to look into it more, I would encourage you to go online. The Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, you can write this down, csntm.org, csntm.org. This is a ministry led by Dan Wallace from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and in just like three clicks on your phone, you can be looking at basically any manuscript of the New Testament, and you can zoom in on it, and you can study it, and you can look at it and turn it around, and it's fascinating technology high-res scans of anything and everything related to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. Highly recommend that site. It is phenomenally put together. So, what's so important about having a lot of copies? This is the next question I want to address this morning. What's so important about having a lot of copies? Well, what makes a game of telephone so fun? My son's back there raising his hand. What makes it so fun is that by the time the message gets around, we basically destroyed the message. And we all laugh at what kind of morphed out of our, our game of telephone. Well, like the game of telephone, scribes make mistakes. These are variations in manuscripts. There are, excuse me, variations in manuscripts. And just like the game of telephone, well, more manuscripts mean more variations. Now, this might seem like a problem at first, but it actually makes things much, much easier. John Piper gives us a helpful example. He says, If you had only two manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and one has the story of the woman taken into adultery and the other doesn't, well, you'd be hard put to choose. But, he says, if you had a hundred manuscripts of John, even though you might find more variations... You will not be able to tell, you will be able to tell, excuse me, by the number and age and geographical diversity of the manuscripts, whether the story was there or not. End quote. A scholar F.F. F. Bruce comments, quote, if, if the great number of manuscripts increased the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, he says, remarkably small. The issue on variations is important to understand because this is really the, the root of what Bart Ehrman does to try to lead us astray. It's these variations that, that this is the starting place of his argument. He says something a lot, it's came up first in his Misquoting Jesus book, but, but if you've heard interviews with him, he will kind of go back to the sentence. There are more variations, this is him, there are more variation, variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. There's some 300 and something thousand words in the New Testament, and there are 400,000 variations in the New Testament. And so he uses that to cast doubt on the New Testament. There's more variations in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. Result? Doubt your New Testament. That's his goal. What I want you to understand is that Ehrman is trying to mis mislead us. Dan Wallace responds, quote, Anyone who teaches New, Test New Testament textual criticism knows that this fact, the number of variations, is only part of the picture. And that, he says, if left dangling in front of the reader without explanation, is a distorted view. 
Once it is revealed that the great majority of these variants are inconsequential, involving, involving spelling differences that cannot be translated, articles with proper nouns, word order changes, and the like, and that only a very small minority of the variants alter the meaning of the text, the whole picture begins to come into focus. Indeed, only about 1% of the textual variants are both meaningful and viable, end quote. That was Dan Wallace. Wallace goes on to demonstrate in his article 16 different ways the sentence, Jesus loves Paul, can be written in the Greek language. The Greek language is very different than ours. It's a case language, the, the use of definite articles, indefinite articles, word order. It's very different than us. And so he demonstrates 16 different ways that we can write, that a Greek author could write, Jesus loves Paul. But at the end of the day, what's the meaning? Jesus loves Paul. There's no issue, although there's 16 variations. And so, with all these various uh, uh, all these variations, excuse me, we have to ask the question, are there any significant doctrines threatened in the process with all these 400,000 variations? There must be some, right? Well, the truth is, there isn't. There's no variation, uh, there's no uh, variations that would, that would threaten the doctrines like the Trinity, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the atonement, the second coming. There simply are not. F.F. Bruce, again, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historical fact or of Christian faith and practice. Now, like I said, this is an important point because Bart Ehrman, the Bart Ehrmans of the world, they're, they're using this argument to cast doubt on the New Testament. That all these variations should make us question the validity of the New Testament. Ehrman argues in the second half of his book, misquoting Jesus, that we should doubt the validity of the New Testament as a result of all these variations. But his position is at odds with the scholarship. It's founded on a misguided view of textual variance. And church, it's simply untrue. The words of Frederick Kenyon are still true. He's a turn-of-the-century archaeologist and, a, and a, an expert in manuscript uh, evidence, textual criticism. I love his quote. He says, It is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable Word of God. As a man who dedicated his life to the archaeology and the study of the text. Now, in 2014, the Freedom From Religious Foundation, I'm sure they're a fun bunch of people, well, they presented Bart Ehrman with their highest award, the Emperor Has No Clothes Award. Excuse me. On, upon receiving, I just can't imagine what that ceremony looked like. <laughs> upon receiving that award, we jest, but it's really not funny. It's, it's tragic, is what it is. 
Upon receiving that award, they interviewed Bart, and he spoke about what led him to renounce the Christian faith and consider himself to be a, both an agnostic and an atheist, which he does. He considered himself an agnostic and an atheist. He's an agnostic because agnosticism has to do with what you know, epistemology, and so he doesn't know. But he's an agnostic. He's an atheist because he doesn't believe. Agnosticism, uh, atheism has to do with what you believe. So he's an agnostic, he doesn't know, and he's an atheist because he doesn't believe. He's grabbing hold of both of them. He's doubling down, you might say. Now, although we might assume, in light of Bart's research and writing, that it was his skepticism of the Scriptures that resulted in a shipwreck of faith, I would assume that. It's what he, it's his discipline, his text criticism. He's been critical of the Bible. Surely that's what led him away from the faith. Well, that's not true. While it played a part, it wasn't the central reason. Here's what Bart said in this interview. You can see this online. I've heard people say that I went from being a fundamentalist, that is a Christian, to being an agnostic because of problems in the Bible. He says that's completely wrong. It was a very long process. I was a very open-minded, liberal Christian for many, many years. And he says this. He says, it was really the problem of suffering that ended up creating the big issue for me that led me to acknowledge that I am an agnostic. I find that a fascinating sentence. It's tragic. But it's fascinating. What I find fascinating about it is that it really reveals the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is that Bart Ehrman doesn't believe really got nothing to do with manuscript evidence. He doesn't believe. He doesn't accept God's answer for suffering. That's, that's the issue for Bart. And so, his faith is shipwrecked. This issue of belief, of course, is an issue we've been addressing for weeks from the Gospel of John. We're confronted with it every time we open the Gospel of John. Believe. Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The clarion call of the Gospel of John is believe. Apparently, Bart doesn't want to believe that. He doesn't want to believe in God. He doesn't want to accept God's answer for suffering. And I get it. It's a hard one. God has allowed suffering. I wish he wouldn't. I don't like to suffer. I know you don't like to suffer. I wish that God would end suffering right now. But God hasn't left us without an answer for our suffering. God sent someone to walk through all of our suffering. Did he not? To embrace the highest form of suffering. To take the wrath of God on. 
to accept the judgment from God that I deserve, to drink the cup of his wrath. There's no greater suffering than that. And that's the answer that the Bible gives for suffering. And so God says, trust my answer. Look to the man who walked through that suffering and believe in him. And you know what? Accept that right now there is suffering. But it's just for a short time. There is a solution. It is found in the Lord, in his son Jesus. Again, I wish that there was no suffering. But God wants us to believe. He wants us to trust his answer for suffering. You know, as Christians, we're in love with evidence for our faith. There are hundreds of ministries that exist to provide us with tangible evidence for our faith. Those are well and good. Hear me. I appreciate ministries that give us evidence for our faith. I appreciate answers in Genesis. I appreciate, you know, whatever the ministry is that built the Noah's Ark somewhere in the Midwest, wherever it is. I appreciate all of that. Amen to that. These are good and well. Ministries that convince us that the universe has the marks of a creator, that the Genesis record is true, that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. All of those are good. But sometimes I wonder, are they for the Christian or for the unbeliever? Is it more about us or more about them? Because see, what God wants us to do is he wants us to believe. You understand that's an act of faith. We believe in something that's invisible. God is invisible. And so to believe, to have faith, is to trust something that I can't always wrap my hands around. That's the reality of our faith. Sure, there are reasons to believe, and those are good. But John's gospel wants to just, oh, he just, he just wants to pull us away from it. He wants us to just let our fingers go and to believe and to trust that his ways are not our ways. It's so hard to do that. I've spoken to you before about this tension that's found in the book of John. A tension between seeing and believing. It's so true in this gospel, like in no other. The gospel is full of these tangible evidences, seven signs, that convince us that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. All these are good. Jesus wants us to look to these signs. He wants us to look to the evidence and believe. That's the reason why the miracles are in the Gospel of John. Yet, he's critical of those who demand signs. Jesus says, 448, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wait a second. I thought that's why you gave me a sign. Are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth, Jesus? You can see the tension. Jesus knows that although his signs will put us on the right path, church, there's a better way. To give us a sign is really to condescend. I, th I hope you understand that. It's to step towards us and say, okay, <laughs> I'll give them a sign. 
But what God wants us to do is He wants us to believe, to trust Him, to trust His ways. His ways are not our ways, to not operate by the wisdom of the world, but operate by His wisdom. Bart Ehrman's story is a testimony, I believe, to that, his shipwreck of faith. John 12, 37 says, though he, though Jesus, had done so many signs, this is written in a book about signs, although he did so many signs, imagine the signs that they saw Jesus perform. There are more than seven doesn't John say something at the end of his book about if, the, if, if they were all collected, the books, the libraries of the world couldn't contain them? That's the greatest hyperbole ever. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. There it is. You can pile up the evidence. You can make every high and lofty argument for the existence of God and for Jesus and for the Scriptures. But here's the crux of the issue. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Turn your Bible to the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. This is a story about Jesus and Thomas. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas was an apostle. He was one of the twelve. They called him the twin. Verse 24 says that he was not with them when Jesus came the first time. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of of the nails and, the, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Wow. He wants evidence. What has this man already seen? Goodness gracious. And yet he still wants to see the marks. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Our God is so gracious. So gracious. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. He didn't have to do that. Do not disbelieve, he says, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He had the evidence. But in a, in a book that's all about evidence and signs, here we have at the very end the story of Thomas and these words from Jesus. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's the move. 
Yes, it's good that you believe because they're signs. It's good that you believe because you placed your hand on my side. But there's a blessing for those. There's an extra blessing for those who have never had that opportunity and yet believe. I'm not sure what to do with a woman caught in adultery. (laughs) But it's here for a reason. And I believe maybe it's here in this text, if there's a reason. I'm not going to make you stand for the reading of it. Maybe it's here because it challenges us regarding our faith. What evidence do we need for our faith? In some special way, the questions surrounding its existence allow us to evaluate our existence. That is, you might say, our faith existence. Amen. Joel.